Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 84, St. Sergius I. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So I've said in past episodes that one of the cool things about this project is you get to know popes that you'd never heard of before but had awesome stories. And St. Sergius I was one of those popes for me. I had no idea. I'd never heard about him. And it turns out he was really cool. So if you remember from last week as we start his story, we had our first contentious election in a while. And unfortunately, that trend is going to continue this week. The differences that divided the church in Rome did not get settled with the compromise candidate of Pope Conan, who died fairly quickly after his election. There were two factions again in this case, each led by an ambitious man vying for the papacy. And we heard about the priest Theodore and his faction last week. They're still around. But now we have a new player on the field, and that's the Archdeacon Paschal. Now, as Pope Conan was dying last episode, this Archdeacon Paschal wrote to the exarch, the Byzantine governor in Ravenna, and he said, you know, I've got a little money, you've got a little power, why not make me Pope and then get paid for it? And that's apparently what happened. The exarch directed his people in Rome to support Paschal. When Pope Conan died in 687, both sides rushed to get their guy elected. Theodore's faction seems to have been a little bit quicker. They elected Theodore Pope and took control of the inner chambers of the Lateran Palace. And Pascal's people elected him Pope, and they took control of the outer portion of the Lateran Palace. And like last time, we had a standoff. We had two, comp two different candidates supported by two different factions of the Roman people, and neither of them having legitimacy. And so again, they went looking for a compromi compromised candidate, and they found one, a Syrian priest whose name was Sergius. Now, this Syrian family had come to Rome like a lot of others from the Middle East because of the conquest of the Holy Land by the Umayyad Caliphate armies. The Libra Pontificalis tells us that he was active on the Roman musical scene, apparently. He was teaching music and chant in Rome. And he was ordained a priest and assigned as the pastor of Santa Susanna in June of 683. Apparently, the Libra Pontificalis also tells us that he loved the catacombs. He would make frequent pilgrimages there to celebrate masses at the tombs of the martyrs. So this is our compromised candidate. He was a prudent and holy man, but he was also courageous and forthright. He was elected, and the people forced him into the Lateran and would not take no for an answer. Theodore immediately submitted to the new Pope Sergius I, and so did Paschal, but Paschal apparently was crossing his fingers behind his back when he submitted or something like that because he went home and immediately wrote letters to the Byzantine exarch informing him of what was happening and asking him for his help and promising him 100 pounds of gold to get this other guy unelected and get him elected. And so the exarch came to Rome in secret, but when he got there, he realized that it was too late. Sergius was already the Pope, and everyone basically acknowledged it. But he'd come all that way, and he wanted the 100 pounds of gold. So he informed Sergius that someone's going to pay me 100 pounds of gold, and it seems like it's going to have to be you. And Sergius refused, so the exarch said, well, then I refuse to allow you to be consecrated. And finally, after a lot of haggling, Sergius gave him, he said, just get the money and get out of here. And he was consecrated Pope in December of 687. Now, because for a time both Paschal and Theodore claimed they were the true Pope, 
they make our official list of anti-popes, which is a big deal. We haven't had an anti-pope since Dioscorus in 530, which was 150 years ago. But in reality, these guys weren't weren't really anti-popes. They didn't persist against the, the actual pope very long. Now, Sergius is officially elected pope. Let's talk about what happened during his rather long 14 years on the chair of St. Peter. Now, the first story we have of his reign comes from England. The king of the West Saxons, a man named Cadwalia, was undergoing the process of conversion to Christianity. And like Constantine I, the great emperor, he seems to have decided to put off his baptism for whatever reason. But he also seems to have had some Christian sympathies. Cadwalla, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, St. Bede tells us was a young and vigorous king, and he endeavored to add to his territory by conquest. And so he raised an army and conquered the Isle of Wight just off the coast of England. But during that conquest, he was injured badly, and this injury seems to have sparked his nascent Christianity. It looked like he was going to die, so I need to get right with the Lord. So Cadwalla abdicated the throne, and he made a pilgrimage in Rome to be baptized. St. Bede describes it like this, Cadwalla quitted his crown for the sake of the Lord and an everlasting kingdom, and went to Rome, being desirous to obtain the particular honor of being cleansed in the baptismal font at the threshold of the blessed apostles. For he had learned that in baptism alone, the entrance into the heavenly life is open to mankind. So, Cadwalla came to Rome in 689. He was greeted by Pope Sergius, who baptized him on Easter Sunday. And Cadwalla took the Christian name Peter at the prompting of Pope Sergius, and then died from his wombs a couple days later, and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. It's a pretty neat story. Now, the next event in the papacy of Sergius I that we have records of came in 692, when the newish emperor of the Byzantine Empire, Justinian II, called what history has termed the Quinisex Council. And it's called this because it was meant to supplement and help correct the deficiencies of the 5th and 6th councils of the church. Justinian II turns out to have been very devout. He wanted to be a great emperor, too, like his namesake, Justinian the Great. And all the great emperors had councils that they got to preside over. So he thought, you know... If I want to be a great emperor, I need a council. I need to preside over one. And so he decides to call this council. And he also seems to have wanted to impose a little bit more control over the Western church. The Eastern church, he got underhand. But the Western church was a little, a little different, a little more independent, had its own traditions. So while this council that he had called was primarily disciplinary in nature and didn't treat on the dogmas of the church like most of our past councils, it really took aim at Western Catholic practices in particular. Now, we have the text of the cans today, so I'll read just a couple of them to you and, and kind of explain it a little bit. So the council forbade anyone in the priestly order nor any layman eat the unleavened bread of the Jews. In the East, they, they used leavened bread for the Eucharist, while the practice in the West, which we still follow today, is to use unleavened bread. So this is a direct hit at the West. The council permitted marriage, married clergy to remain married, while in the West, the practice was for clergy to be celibate. And the council said, Wherefore, if anyone shall be found worthy to be ordained subdeacon or deacon or presbyter, he is by no means to be prohibited from admittance to such a rank, even if he shall live with a lawful wife. Nor shall it be demanded of him at the time of his ordination that he promise to abstain from lawful in intercourse with his wife. The Western clergy was celibate. The Eastern clergy was not. The council also stated that in order, therefore, that 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 which is perfect may be delineated to the eyes of all, at least in colored expression, 
We decree that the figure in human form of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Christ our God, be henceforth exhibited in images instead of the ancient Lamb, so that all may understand by means of it the depths of the humiliation of the Word of God, and that we may recall to our memory his conversion in the flesh, his passion and salutary death, and his redemption which was wrought for the whole world. Now this canon takes aim at a Western practice of displaying a lamb to represent Christ in churches. You see it in many of the mosaics in the ancient basilicas in Rome today. And says, no, no depiction of Christ as a lamb, only as a human being, showing him on the cross or in glory or whatever. Now, not everything was a shot at Roman Catholics. There's a cool canon which describes the sacrament of confirmation, which is pretty close to what we do today. And it says, Then first of all, we anoint them with the holy chrism on their foreheads, eyes, nostrils, mouth, and ears. And as we seal them, we say, The seal of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, thankfully, your nostrils aren't anointed at confirmation. But the, the words and the fact that of the anointing is very, very close to what, what we do still today. The Roman diplomats in Constantinople during this council, they strongly objected to these canons. They were obviously a direct shot at the West. But they were forced to sign them by Justinian II, and then he sent them on to Pope Sergius. Now, Sergius not only refused to sign, he in fact said he would rather die than sign, but he also refused to allow the envoys to even read the canons out loud. And then he went a step further. So he's getting all riled up about this direct shot across the bow by the Eastern Church, and he goes in direct contradiction to the canon on the Lamb of God, and he had the mosaic of the Lamb of God in St. Peter's Basilica repaired and cleaned up. And not only that, he then went and introduced into the Mass a chant that we're all familiar with today. The East doesn't want any Lamb of God? How about in every single Latin Mass, we're going to say, Agnus Dei, Every single Mass, we have to say that. And we still do that today. And it's all because of this moment where the East was trying to impose on the West their practices. And Sergius said, nope, we love depicting Christ as the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. And so how about this? Every single Mass, we're going to chant the Agnus Dei. Now, anyway, you can bet that this response did not make Justinian II happy. So he followed the playbook of several of our previous Byzantine emperors when a pope stood up to them, and he sent a representative to come to Rome and arrest the pope. The guy he chose was named Zacharias, and he was a s captain of the imperial bodyguard. St. Sergius, however, got wind of this, and he asked the people of Italy, and especially the imperial exarch in Ravenna, for help. So when Zacharias arrived, he discovered that there was a whole army of angry Italians that had followed him down to Rome. And not only were they on the Pope's side, but they wanted Zacharias's head. A rumor had gone round that Zacharias had already secretly captured the Pope and deported him, and they were furious. So Zacharias, who had, upon his arrival, cornered the Pope in the Lateran Palace, now, realizing that there's a giant army outside the Lateran Palace, turns around and asks the Pope, who he had been pursuing before, to hide him. He said, St. Sergius, help me, help me, help me to get away from this army. And, and he actually ran and hid under the Pope's bed. And Pope Sergius went out and talked to the army. He said, don't worry, you know, he hasn't captured me. And just calm down and don't kill this guy. He doesn't deserve to die, but just return him back to the Byzantine emperor. And they agreed. At the Pope's urging, urging they decided, we're not going to kill Zacharias. 
but instead they deported him back to Constantinople. Now Justinian II was probably even more furious about this later development, but it wouldn't matter that much because he was deposed in a coup in 695 by a military commander named Leontius. Apparently Justinian II had spent too much money building lavish buildings and taxed people too hard, and so they got tired of him and overthrew him, and we're going to see this a lot more frequently in the empire in the east, coup after coup after coup. Now, Leontius ordered that Justinian II have his nose cut off because there was some law about a Byzantine emperor not being able to sit if he's lost many of his appendages or he's deformed in some way. And so Justinian II got this great nickname, Justinian II the Slit-Nosed, and he was exiled to the Crimean Peninsula in what is now Ukraine. One other major event in St. Sergius' life needs to be talked about, and this is his care for the Frisians, which were a group of German or Dutch tribes living in what is today the coast of the Netherlands and in northern Germany. St. Wildebord, an Irish monk, came to St. Sergius asking permission to go and establish a church among the Frisians as a missionary, and St. Sergius ordained him a bishop and sent him along his way. Likewise, St. Sergius helped end the schism with the northern Italian city of Aquileia, which was still angry about the three chapters controversy that we talked about way, 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 way long time ago. Finally, a couple of fun things for the sacristans out there. The Liber Pontificalis tells us that St. Sergius was concerned with kind of cleaning up the churches in Rome. So he undertook a large program of building and repairing churches throughout the city. And he himself looked through the sacristy at St. Peter's to see if he could clean it up. We've all done it. And there he found a box tucked in the corner of a relic of the true cross. And we still have this relic today, though it's now kept in St. John Lateran. And he also found the body of St. Leo the Great tucked back there. And he placed it in a beautiful new tomb. You never know what you're going to find in a sacristy. St. Sergius I died in September of 701, and he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. And he was succeeded by Pope John VI, and we'll talk about him next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com and you can find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless.